I wonder what the days after Christmas are like for you, right? We're a few days into it now. So maybe Christmas for you is a time where you get really amped up. Uh, maybe you're still like kids, right? And you just get amped up. Maybe it's not because you're getting gifts, but because you love to see your kids open their gifts. Or maybe it's just the time to be together with family, and so you get really amped up. And I wonder what the few days after Christmas are like. Sometimes a little bit of a letdown. We went to my parents' house on Christmas Eve, and we spent the night into Christmas. And Rach and I slept downstairs with a lot of the kids. And um, a few things were the realities of Christmas, uh, Christmas Eve night for me. One was that we slept on an air mattress that started to lose air. <laughs> which is wonderful, right? And for some reason, the air mattress, and I don't know all the, I don't know if this is physics or science, some kind of science that I don't understand, but the air mattress, the air in it must have gotten so cold that I woke up freezing, right? And Jackson, who rarely spends a full night in his bed without getting up to have questions or issues or something, had made his way into the middle. And so I was on the edge of the air mattress, which was already losing air, rolling off, and the blankets were going the other way. And then at four o'clock in the morning, Jackson and Tyler and their cousin David said they were up, right? It's Christmas morning, four o'clock. Why not? Uh, they were amped up, man. They were so excited. And so we said to them, not yet. And they went back down and laid their heads down for five minutes and popped back up and said, is it time yet? Are your kids ever like that? And then you go and have this, this Christmas, whatever it's like for you, whether it's a big breakfast and a time with family or whether there's gifts and different things that happen. And then inevitably after the fact, it begins to dawn on you that real life is going to start again soon, right? That your vacation from work is soon over or that the euphoria of Christmas is soon coming to an end. And for many people, the days after Christmas are a time when things start to sort of slope the other way. It's interesting that the days after Christmas in the accounts in Scripture are filled with realities for this new family, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. And we want to read one of those stories this morning as we continue in this series, Christmas Behind the Scenes. If you've not been with us, we've been taking this Advent season to look at some of the characters in the Christmas story who basically don't get much airtime. Their stories aren't the popular ones. They're not the angels, they're not the shepherds, they're not the magi, and they're not Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. But they have this really unique and important part in the Christmas story. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 22. This is the story of Jesus being presented in the temple uh, by his parents, being consecrated back. Jesus was the firstborn son. Luke chapter 2, verse 22. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts, and when the parents uh, brought in the child Jesus to do for him what uh, what the custom of the law required, 
Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for the revelation of the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Now there was a prophet named Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at the very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. This is such an interesting story, isn't it? This couple brings their son to the temple to be consecrated and dedicated to the Lord. A Jewish custom. They are going through the processes that are normal for a Jewish family. But as soon as they get there, things go very different than it would for any other Jewish family. Suddenly this old man, right, shows up and takes the child from the mother's arms. Imagine being Mary and Joseph in this moment when Simeon comes running up and takes Jesus from Mary's arms and begins shouting these songs of praise to them. Imagine the terror and the fear. Can you even comprehend that ever happening in society today? It could almost never happen, right? And then, after he makes these prophecies, turning to Mary and basically saying, your son is going to cause such a division in Israel and is going to cause such heartache even for you, a sword that's going to pierce your own heart. And so Anna shows up and comes over, and then not only does she, does she speak to Mary and Joseph about the baby, but she starts talking to everyone else who is there about this child. That this child is the one who is to come. Everyone who's looking for the redemption of Israel is going to find it through this very child. Imagine being Mary and Joseph. Well, what I want to suggest to you, and I may try to do it quickly, so that I can talk the whole way through it, is that this story is an Exodus story about a Jesus who breaks boundaries for people who receive Him by faith. It's an Exodus story about a Jesus who breaks boundaries for people who receive Him by faith. You might say, why is this an Exodus story? It doesn't make sense to me. I don't see anything about the Exodus. There's no Red Sea being parted. There's no remembering Egypt in any way. And yet... If you look at it critically, you'll see that the Exodus story is all throughout this narrative. In fact, both Matthew and Luke, who are interested in telling the early days of the Jesus story, are careful to root it in the Exodus story. And Luke wants to root it in this too, because the Exodus is the major paradigm for the Jewish people of what they expect to happen through the coming Messiah. So here's what's going on when I talk about the Exodus story. Let's kind of just read back through this and pick this out just a little bit. When when the time came 
for the purification rites required by the law of Moses. Right? So this whole thing starts out immediately talking about this purification rite that's happening. And the purification rites are set up in Exodus chapter 13. I talked about it just a, a few minutes ago when we dedicated Lucy. The reality is <clears throat> that when the, when the Exodus has happened and the people of God are moving out into the new land that God has promised, He declares to them the firstborn son of every, uh, every parent group, of every family, is to be given back to me, consecrated back to me. And the reason this is supposed to happen is that the people of God are never to forget the way in which God protected the firstborn sons of all of Israel in the Passover. If you're unfamiliar with the Passover story, God had declared to Pharaoh, uh, the leader of Egypt, through Moses, that he was to let the people of Israel go. And Pharaoh, of course, said, no, I enjoy their their work and their labor uh, way too much for that. Uh, it was at, <clears throat> on the backs of the Israelites that most of the cities of Egypt were being built. Right, They were slaves in that land. And so God begins to institute all kinds of, of plagues on the people of, of Egypt in order for Pharaoh to relent and let the people of Israel go. And ultimately this leads to this horrific plague where the firstborn son <clears throat> will die unless there's the blood of a pure lamb spread across the door frames. And of course, those who are devoutly following Yahweh, the God of Israel, follow God's commands and spread this blood over their door frames. And when this angel of death comes to, to institute this plague, the angel passes over the houses of people where the blood is spread. And so in the consecration of these firstborns back to God, uh, basically the people of Israel are saying, you spared my firstborn and now I'm giving him back to you. He's always belonged to you. She's always belonged to you. And now I'm demonstrating that they are yours. You've passed over. You've saved them. You've given them back. So the Exodus story, right from the outset in this whole thing, is front and center. Because the whole setting is at this consecration service uh, for Jesus. The purification rites for the law of Moses. Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written for the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. And you're to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of doves and two young pigeons. What's interesting here, and you can't see it, is that this purification rite happens in a very specific way. So Mary, when she gives birth, is considered impure in the Jewish law for seven days. And then on the eighth day, the baby, if it's a boy, is circumcised. And then there's 33 more days until Mary is considered, or the woman giving birth, is considered completely ritually and ceremoniously pure. So you take 7 plus 33, and this whole waiting period until you're ritually clean again is how long? It's 40 days. What do we know about the number 40 in the Old Testament and in the Exodus story? 40 years of wandering in the wilderness until they finally enter the land of promise. 40 years of wandering in ceremoniously unclean. 40 days of wandering ceremoniously unclean and then declared pure at this ceremony. They meet this man named Simeon and he is looking for what he calls the consolation of Israel. Basically this comforting of Israel that will come only from Messiah. 
And this whole language is rooted in Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49. And Isaiah's prophecy is to uh, a group of uh, the Israelites who are in exile and are waiting uh, restoration back from exile to the land of promise. Isaiah's full um, prophecy is on the heels of Exodus, right? He's saying to the people, in the same way that you were brought out of Egypt, you'll be brought out of Babylon and Assyria. You'll be brought back to the land. And Simeon is rooting this whole thing in this reality. And his whole song of praise is about salvation. That the Messiah is come to save and salvation at its core is rooted in the Exodus story. And then you have these two old people. Right? Luke is careful to tell us that Anna is 84 years old. Whenever an author is careful to tell us something like that, it's really important. What is he saying? Why are these two older people who are waiting and waiting and waiting so radically important? Well, they draw our imagery back to the Exodus account too, don't they? The older generation that was told because of their rebellion they would not enter the land of promise. Where Moses can see it, he can taste it, he can touch it. God gives him glimpses, glimpses of it, but he never fully enters in. And Simeon is a Moses-like character. He sees the Messiah, and then he says, and now I can die. Right? He won't fully experience the ministry of the Messiah. So you have in this whole motif an Exodus story. That this baby who is coming is going to be Moses-like, but in a whole bigger way. He's going to lead a whole program of liberation. I wonder this morning if you're in need of liberation. I wonder if there are areas of your life that are bound tight. I wonder if there are ways which you feel bound and chained and enslaved. Maybe there are addictions in your life. Maybe it's just the guilt of sin. You just cannot shed the guilt of sin. Maybe relationships are binding you and have bound you. The truth of the Christmas story is it is the beginning of the greatest liberation project in the history of mankind. That Jesus has showed up Not to impose on us something new, but to open us up to the long-intended plan and promises of God. That everything that has bogged us down and bound us up is now broken free when we're united to Christ and open to new things. It's an Exodus story. It's an Exodus story in many ways because Jesus is the great bondage breaker, right? He's the great boundary breaker. He smashes boundaries in our midst. This is why he's the great liberator. Think of these three things that are happening in this story. The first thing that Jesus smashes and breaks up in terms of boundaries is this idea of holiness and purity. In the Jewish law in the days of that age, to be, uh, to be impure meant to be ostracized from society. Right? If you were ritually impure, you had to live on the outskirts of society until you could cleanse yourself and then get back into the good graces of society, law, and religion, as it were. Mary had to make sacrifices 
in order to become pure again. But Jesus smashes that boundary. You might say, well, how does he do it? She still has to make these sacrifices. Well, she does because she's a practicing Jew. But the Jews follow these sacrifices and these legal realities for one clear purpose. They want God's presence to stay close. Now what Mary may or may not know in its fullest sense is that God has been close to her for 40 days while she was completely ceremoniously impure. This is radical. right? That God was with her in the most intimate ways as a child to a mother. When according to her religion and people, She needed to be on the outsides of society because she was ritually impure. God could not be close to her until she sacrificed and was clean. And yet, God was under her care as a child. This is radically new, radically unbelievable. Boundaries are being smashed in the liberating reality of Jesus at Christmas. Do you understand what this means for you, church? This means that sin, which we are all guilty of, can no longer keep you from God if you're united to Jesus. That there is no such thing as ritual impurity if you're united to Christ. That there's no way that God is leaving your presence if you're united to Christ. That because of the work of Jesus, because of the incarnation, because of this liberation project that's underway in full force in Jesus, sin is dealt with in its completion. This is the truth for all of us. Let me say this as a counterpoint, church. If you are imposing holiness boundaries on others, if you are imposing holiness purity boundaries on yourself in the name of keeping God close, you haven't understood the gospel. Jesus smashes the boundaries. Now, What I'm not saying is go do whatever you want to do, right? Because Jesus broke the boundary and you can live any way you want. If you're united to Christ, Scripture tells us in all kinds of other places, then your heart is God's and you are inclined to do the things of God. But your screw-ups along the way, of which there will be many if you are anything like me, will not and cannot keep the presence of God from you. And this is radically, radically important. The second boundary that is broken is a socioeconomic boundary. Now, Mary and Joseph are clearly poor people. And you might say, how do we infer this from the story? We infer it because of the sacrifice that they chose to make. The sacrifice that was required of Mary was a lamb. Sacrifice that said she gave is two pigeons. Now, why is that important? In Leviticus chapter 12... This is what is said of a woman who is ritually impure because of childbirth. That after these 40 days of impurity, she comes and makes two sacrifices to God in the temple. The first sacrifice is a lamb. And this lamb is a burnt offering sacrifice. And the second sacrifice is a dove or a pigeon. And this sacrifice is a sin offering. And when both of these are received by the priest and credited to her uh, by God, she becomes ritually Uh, ceremoniously clean again. However, if she's unable uh, to afford a lamb because of her socioeconomic status, 
then she's allowed to substitute a lamb with a pigeon. And so what you have in Mary and Joseph are poor people who are Galilean outsiders to the Jerusalem establishment. And yet these are the very people that Jesus chooses to enter the world through. These are the people who Jesus hitches his wagon to, as it were. This is the way that God chooses to institute this liberation program into the world. This is the way that God chooses to show up in big ways into the world. What is he saying? He's saying that wealth and status and power are not used by God to determine your importance. And this is radically important. In that day and age, and quite frankly in our day and age, wealth and power and status mean everything. Wealth and power and status will get you almost everything you need in society. It will put you in the places to achieve the things you need. And if you don't have them, you have to work way harder to accomplish them. And yet when Jesus shows up, what he's saying is everyone's on a level playing field. You're no longer born into (coughs) favor of God. You're no longer born into these realities that God, when he sees you, sees you according to your connection to Jesus. If this is true of the gospel, then it demands of us that we start viewing people in the same way, doesn't it? That wealth and status and power have no bearing on our opinion of people and their value in this world. This gospel and Jesus coming into a poor family is not to, uh, you know, because of the power of the gospel, make them rich. We don't see that for Mary and Joseph. Most people believe that Joseph doesn't live very long and Mary is heartbroken for most of her life. (coughs) Right? There's no signs of of great wealth coming into their midst because the gospel shows up. It's not this great story of prosperity, as it were, but it's a story of (coughs) complete acceptance and identity because of the gospel. Third thing, Jesus breaks an ethnic and religious boundary. What is Simeon's prophecy over Jesus? I love this. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, You may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Now this is astonishing for a Jewish temple dweller to say, that this Messiah is not just for the Jewish people, but for the entire world. And in fact, this was always God's plan from the beginning of calling Abraham, who God would bless to bless the nations, plural, and the coming Messiah, who Isaiah prophesied would be a light to the nations. Jesus is saying, it is not by birthright that you enter the family of God, but now by your connection to Jesus. He smashes religious and ethnic boundaries. It's not the religion you follow, it's the Savior you worship. It's not the religion you hold fast to. It's if you follow Jesus or not. 
in the same way that it smashes these ethnic boundaries. Because to Jewish people, to be Jewish was very ethnic, uh, eth- there's a great ethnic pride in that. They were the people of God, the people who were called out. And Jesus smashes that, basically, in this beginning of this story, saying that his entrance into the world is not just for them, but for everyone. If this is true, then it has all kinds of bearing on how we treat people, doesn't it? Most of you are familiar with the headlines of our world today, specifically the headlines of our country. Racial tensions all around our country. Tensions with police officers. We pause by saying we are not a political church. We usually don't address things like this. The gospel has something to say here. So let me just say this. This is not a simple problem. And it certainly does not have a simple answer. It needs tons of listening and, and working to understand rather than to convince needs to happen to get to the bottoms of these problems and to find real, honest solutions. But at the same time, this problem and these problems really are simple problems with a simple answer. The simple problem is sin, and the simple answer is the gospel on both sides of the issue. Sometimes some more than other, sometimes others more, right? And if we were more identified by the gospel than by ethnic, racial, political, religious understandings, then the church could be the answer to these issues in the world as God intended it to be. See, when Jesus showed up, He showed up to introduce this program of liberation and He smashed these boundaries. And for many of us, we are still defined by these boundaries. Why? Some of you are carrying such guilt for sin. This morning, I need to introduce you to Jesus. You are free of guilt if you have received His sacrifice. The only one who can convince you otherwise is the devil himself. And you have to say no. Some of you are listening to people who say you don't belong. (laughs) You're not part of it. Some of you are the people who are saying you don't belong. You're not part of this. We've built up these sort of political, ethnic, socioeconomic, you know, all all these sociological word boundaries all around us that say, you know, where do I rank in the pecking order of life? You know, we love to look at other people to think about that. Well, I'm better than you, but I'm not quite as good as you. And where do I fit? How do I size myself up in these situations? And the reality of the gospel is that every human life has value, equal value, and that Jesus came for everyone. And that there's no level of status or importance in the midst of the people of God. See, Jesus is this liberating Force. So radically important. It's no longer because you follow religion that you are in God's favor. It's no longer because you were born into the right family that you have God's favor. It's no longer that you have something to offer God or the church that you have God's favor. It's no longer because you're holier than someone else that you have God's favor. You see this, church? 
It is just Jesus. It's an Exodus story about a boundary-breaking Jesus who was received by people of faith. So the last question is, are you a person of faith? Have you received this Jesus? See, Jesus shows up on the scene to a temple which probably is crowded with thousands of people. And four people, exactly four people, recognize him. Percentages are not good, are they? Mary and Joseph know who he is. Now they've got an inside track. Both of them had angels show up and tell them this is who this guy is. And they've been living with him for 40 days. Simeon's a little bit different. He recognizes him right away. But the Holy Spirit had revealed to him that he was coming. And he'd been searching for him for a long time. And then Anna recognizes him. And we get from Anna a sense of her being the champion of this story. The person almost of greatest faith. Who because she is so given in throngs of worship to God. When Jesus, God himself, shows up. She almost can't help but recognize him. I wonder what your story is. Jesus is just as alive and present now as he was then. And yet the percentages say that a small percentage of people recognize him. He's not a religious being. You don't have to go to church and sort of follow religious rules to find him. But have you recognized and embraced Jesus in your life and in your midst. For Mary and Joseph, their faith is a day-by-day faith, isn't it? They're trying to piece this thing together day by day. Weird stuff is constantly happening if you're Mary and Joseph, right? From the time that, that angel showed up to Mary, to, to showed up to Joseph, nothing has been normal ever since, right? Shepherds are showing up. Magi from foreign countries are showing up. Now they're in the temple just trying to do this thing that they're called to do. And old men and old women are grabbing their kid and and shouting prophecies over them. They're just trying to piece this thing together day by day. For many of us, this is our faith, isn't it? We're just trying to get through day by day. And I want to say to you that God says of Mary and Joseph wonderful things. That they are blessed that they're to be modeled, they're to be followed after, right? Sometimes you might feel that my faith is just like, ugh, I'm just trying to get through day by day by day, and I can't see the big picture. And what I want to say to you is that if you are acting in that kind of faith, then you are under the blessing of God. He's grateful for that. And you're to be commended for that. Life is a thick, thick jungle sometimes, isn't it? And faith is a little bit like a machete that every once in a while you give a sweep and it clears what you think ought to be a big picture and it's just the next step. But that kind of faith is remarkable. right? Mary becomes what is called all through church history and in scripture the, the Holy Theotokos. Right? And it's not to give her a position higher than anyone else. But it's basically saying she's the one whom God chose to bear Jesus to the world. And do you know what? That's true of all of you. That God is choosing you to make Him known in this world. And when you take those swipes of faith just to make it to the next day, 
you're living into the reality of that story and making him known. And then there's Simeon. This guy, I just picture him like a crazy man. I don't know. Roaming around from, the, from one corner of the temple to the next, like ripping, ripping newborn sons out of mom's hands, trying to see, is this the one or not? Because like, God promised, and t- I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going gonna, gonna to die until I see this, and I'm pretty old, and things are pretty bad for me, and I, we need to see this promise come true, right? And he comes up, and he finds this baby... And he says these unbelievable words about what, what is true of this baby. That salvation is going to come. He's going to be a light to the Gentiles. And then he says this very interesting word, right? Now I can die. Does it ever strike you funny about Simeon? Like he's been waiting for this forever. He sees it and he's like, all right, now I can die. And there's a sense in which faith sometimes is searching for Jesus. Isn't it? Sometimes in your life it feels like you know that God is real. You know that Jesus is present. You know that His liberation program is underway. You've sensed the guilt being taken away, but you're trying to find it. You're trying to see. You're searching. You're eager. You need to know the reality of His presence. And Sometimes it feels like you're grabbing babies out of mother's arms and that's not the one. You know? What I want to say to you is that Simeon is called a devout and righteous man. That kind of faith, if you're embodying it, is to be praised and commended. That you're searching for God's specific calling on your life. That you're searching for redemption and reconciliation in your relationships, even if you can't kind of put your finger on it right now. That you're searching for God's greater, higher plan, even though you're just trying to not just go through the motions, but you kind of are. The faith of Simeon is a model kind of faith. I guess you kind of get the picture I'm trying to say now. That for many of us, we demean our own faith, don't we? We discredit it. And it's unfortunate. Because God is breathing and fanning the flames of that faith to grow it even bigger. So live into it. Call it your own. Not so bad a thing to model your faith after Mary and Joseph. Not so bad a thing to model your faith after Simeon. What's interesting about Simeon is that the Holy Spirit is on Him, is what the Scriptures say. And the Holy Spirit is always moving Him to Jesus. That's why He's able, when when Jesus shows up, to identify Him very specifically right away, because the Holy Spirit. And we know that the Holy Spirit's whole ministry, if you read through the Gospel of John, is constantly to point people to Jesus. Testifying about Jesus, teaching about Jesus, reminding the things that Jesus has taught us, John says, or Jesus says the Spirit will do in the Gospel of John. And it's already happening in the life of Simeon. If you're wanting to increase your faith, can I suggest to you making room for the Spirit to embolden your faith? The less you're filled with you, the more you're filled with Him, the easier it will be for you to find Jesus.
And then we have Anna, who I would call the champion of faith. She does not have angels show up to her. She is not said of her that the Holy Spirit is on her, specifically guiding her. She has not been given a promise that she will see uh, this Messiah before she dies. In fact, her life has been awful. She was married, probably excited, and thrilled to be married for seven years, and her husband died. And she spent the next several decades as a widow. And to be a widow in Jewish society who was not redeemed by a kinsman redeemer, by a relative, meant to be searching day by day for food and comfort and shelter and need. And instead of living in pity, she took herself to the temple and devoted all of her time to worshiping God. This is remarkable, isn't it? Who of us when given this life story, like Anna, we give it back to God the way she did. And she is so enthralled in the presence of God. She's so given to worship of God. She's so connected to Him that when Jesus shows up on the scene, she knows who He is right away. Without any Holy Spirit guidance, without any promise from anyone else, without any angels speaking to her, She knows what it's like to be in the presence of God. And so when the presence of God is there, she knows it. I wonder if that's true of us. If we're the kind of people whose faith is cultivated by the time we spend in the presence of God, the quality of effort we put into living as worshipers of God. Here's a true statement. If you are cultivating worship of God, a life of faith and following Jesus naturally follows. It just does. Think about this lady. For decades, all she did was worship at the temple. And when the moment of truth came, she got everything right. Maybe you're a Mary and Joseph, kind of just day by day, day by day. That's so great. Strive for even more. Maybe you're a Simeon. You are searching for Jesus. And you're giving space to the Holy Spirit in your life. And and you are finding Him in moments. That is awesome. And strive for more. And maybe you're like Anna. And you have ordered your life in such a way that worshiping God is not just something you do on a Sunday. It's not just songs that you sing or a sermon that you listen to, but it's a way that you live. In such a way that when God shows up, when He calls you, when He taps you, when He directs you, when He moves you, you are on it time and time again. That is a champion of faith. Aspire to be Anna. But don't discredit yourself for Simeon faith or Mary faith or Joseph faith. Remember that this story ends with Jesus alone on a cross and only Mary is left. 
all of his closest friends have turned their back on him and have run either from fear or straight out disowning Jesus. And yet it's the faith of those disciples upon which Christianity is built. We are people of faith in the midst of this great spiritual journey. Be comforted and credited with your faith, but aspire for more. Because the more you have, the more you follow. And the more you follow Jesus, the more the gospel saturates your being. And the more the gospel saturates your being, the more these barriers are smashed. And the liberating reality of Jesus is known in the full essence. The sin that is rightfully held against you by God is no longer credited to you because of Jesus' work on the cross for you. That the guilt which was rightfully yours is no longer yours because Jesus, in this unbelievable moment of grace and mercy, has taken it from you and credited it to you, as Paul says, righteousness. That is an Exodus story. A boundary-breaking Jesus who must be received by people of faith. Can I pray with you?